everyone. Welcome to Manufacturing Hub. I am Dave. This guy up here is Vlad. We are very happy to continue our conversation talking all about SCADA. We'd like to wel welcome Toby to the show. Toby, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you so much for joining us today. Before we dive into maybe the technical aspects of automation, manufacturing, and everything in between, Toby, could you give us a little bit of a background of uh, how it is that you started in this career and how do you got how did you get to where you are today um i went into the air force as a telecommunications technician and when i got out of the air force i thought i was going to become a civil engineer and i got accepted into colorado state and i went up to colorado state and the, this was after i got my two years of uh you know, the first two years of engineering school, we pretty much all did the same thing. Mm -hmm. The um, It was such a big campus compared to like CU Colorado Springs that mm -hmm. I was like, I felt tiny um, for one of the one times in my career. And I went back down to Colorado Springs and I said, electrical it is. So I <laughs> um, did electrical engineering and bounced back and forth between uh electrical engineering and computer science and computer engineering and um and then finally finished the electrical engineering degree mm. and then that led to controls so i guess just a, a question on the early like military science how like I, i'm curious you know how that experience was was that um i want to say like very educational did you like the work that you did is that an interesting path towards like engineering and i guess I'm curious also the way it works, like do they sponsor, let's say, a degree in engineering after you come out of the military or how does that, like, is there opportunities, I guess, to move up from within the military into like an engineering role, for example? Yeah. So um, I, I was a technician in the military and I just used my GI Bill benefits to go to university. Um, but you can get into officer candidate programs and yeah, go from the enlisted side to the officer side. Mm -hmm. The, um, but any of the technical programs that are in the military is going to benefit an engineering career in my in my opinion because they they teach you how to troubleshoot and um, break down mm -hmm. circuits. You know, like A to B to C, and you troubleshoot between. You know, if if you're not getting like we did telecom, so I was in England. We mm -hmm. would talk to France. And sometimes we'd go from Mildenhall up to London and then across to France, um, sometimes to Germany, sometimes to the Middle East. Um, but if the circuit was broke, you, you segment it out the same way that you do in controls okay. and, um, and break down the, the components in between and um, figure out, you know, just go A to B to C. And if it's good A to B, then you troubleshoot B to C. Mm -hmm. um, if it's broken down between B and C, then you, you know, then you know where your problem is and you, you focus on that. So, and, and so, so troubleshooting guess, skills is definitely there. Yeah. Curious, I guess, I'm like on the tech side, also in the, in, on the military, right? So I've heard kind of both camps where people say it's very like cutting edge because I think the military sort of like invents and invest a lot of like money into new tech, but I've also heard that they have a lot of really old equipment what is your like perspective someone you know working in that field is, is it an opportunity to learn something very new or are you really like maintaining and implementing older systems it 
it depends. Um, so I went into a group that uh, troubleshooted anywhere from flight line equipment to wideband to satellite controls, and um, and and that could, you know, that can make a difference. So like our wideband might be more antiquated, or like we had a tropospheric shot that went. Um, between England and France, you know, and that's 1960s, 1970s technology. Um, you know, at the same time, we, you know, I got an opportunity to work with the training manager and, and create a training database. And it was a monochrome screen with the black and the green. And all we did was put up questions on there, you know, to help us get through our, because um, part of the military, you test, like you start out at a level mm -hmm. three, like in an apprenticeship, and then you go to a level five, and to do that, you have to test technically, and then you also have to do, um, you have to do a board of, of your peers, and then you know, people that outrank you also, um, and that's how you get promoted. At least in the Air Force, and at least you know, 20 mm -hmm. years ago, it may be a little bit different now, but um, you have the opportunity to do all types of tech, technical. Um, equipment as far as modern and old. Um, the satellite system that I worked on at Lockheed after I got out of the military uh, was 1960s version. And you know, it was rather antiquated. Uh, that's what mm -hmm. I was talking about with the, the simulated punch cards. Mm -hmm. And what that got me was learning how to program in sequential, you know, in a sequential fashion that's more like PLCs. Mm -hmm. So. Absolutely. And can you tell that story for anyone who may not have heard it about the sequential punch cards? I know that we've certainly seen it in movies like this is how we sent the first people to space with, with a bunch of uh, <laughs> with a bunch of punch cards. But I don't think we've had anyone on the show who has experience working on the systems, albeit 20 or 30 or 40 years after uh, after that. Yeah. So so if you think about it, it's it, you know, when you have an older system and you're bringing it up to wherever you're at at the moment, um, mm -hmm. you know, you do an integration that will make it work. You know, say like, you know, Windows XP goes away, you got to make that older system still run. So you stick it on a virtual machine. Mm -hmm. um, so the same thing with this satellite system, what Lockheed did was create, you know, pretty much emulated punch cards. And we were restricted to coding at 50 lines of code in, in a routine. Mm -hmm. And then you had to, uh, you know, tie it, you know, I don't know who can get everything done in 50 lines, so you have to <laughs> tie that back in. Um, it, it, we'll put this corp in here, especially if it's ladder logic. Anyway, that, um, you know, you got to put this, this attachment at the bottom so that you can bring in your next subroutine. And I got to work with, um, I, I got to work with a man that I admired. Um, he had started in... 70s, I guess, and he had come from UCLA, and um, yeah, he was from Hawaii, so he'd sit here like this, and he'd think about my question, and he, you had to be quiet and let him think, because this was his process, and um, so I would bring him a stack of paper like this, because the punch mm -hmm. cards, when when you built a program, you had to compile it, like back in the, you know, what build it, compile it, send it over to the mainframe, and then you know, and when you're coding, you're going to get an error. So then the, the mainframe says, and sticks out a, um, it's kind of like what a booster seat that they used to have at the, at the restaurants. It was about yay thick. And uh, he would just go thinking like this, and then he'd go through the stack and he'd 
highlight the hexadecimal and then you'd be like, all right, you go convert that and come back to me when you know the answer to that. And then we'll go through the next step. And um, another time after I got better at this, <laughs> because at the time that I was in college, they do object oriented. Mm-hmm. And um, the, um, yeah, but I was doing sequential. So, so I wasn't, I still didn't fit in at the time. So I'm going to do a sequential and getting learning object oriented. But um, needless to say, he would, he would do that. I'd go to the next step and come back. And about six months later, I'm doing all that on my own, finding some errors on my own, um, putting the system. We did, we did unit testing. So we had a mock-up system that we could download to you. And I download my code. I'm all excited. And then it goes into a loop. And, and my mentor wasn't there at, for that one. There was another mentor I had that, that was a little bit more gruff. And um, it's the first time I heard the man laugh because he comes over to the test unit. And he's like, you know, and he's chuckling. And I'm like, oh, God. You know? And he's like, no, man, this is funny. And I'm like, okay, why? And he's like, this is the first time I've seen it go into a continuous loop like in 15 years. And I'm like, score. You know, but those are, that's just software for you i mean you're you're never really gonna you never really know until you break it is, mm-hmm. is my thing <laughs> so the, com- the comment you know like i would make on that side i think it's fascinating to kind of go back in history and understand how systems were built you know using i want to say more like fundamental languages and how it is today and i think like that knowledge allows you to not only like appreciate but also I feel like the thinking is a little bit different. You know what I mean? If you just learn like a high level language today without learning, let's say something like assembly or, you know, like a very low level language, like it's very hard to have that perspective. So I I think like that's super interesting, personally. I I agree with you. Um, And so look at it from this way. If you want to tie it back into something modern, um, IO-Link, you know, they're doing things at a firmware level um and you know it's getting more plug and play but they're they're putting software on the devices so that we can pretty much plug it in say look here's your address go get me all this all this all this stuff um but you know firmware has obviously changed and and that's changed with the history of the chips and we got more stuff that we can put on our little tiny chip the um but understanding you know like it freaks me out sometimes when I get on a system that still has like a, a push and a pop or a pop and a push or whatever for a stack, yeah. you know, first in, first out, you know, those, those kind of things deep down, the instruments are still acting that way. So we just don't necessarily see it like, like what you're talking about. And if you can um, think about it and, and understand it, then you're at it, you know, you can troubleshoot at a different level. Um, same thing with networks. Um, part of, the OT networking would be being able to uh, get on it and look at a packet coming across and then decipher, you know, this is what Modbus does and this is a normal TCP IP. And, you know, those understanding the bits and like um, some, some people have commented on LinkedIn on some of my posts about big Indian, little Indian, you know, those things, those things are still happening and Mm -hmm. you got to, think about it as as far as like bandwidth and um the reason why we used adia and uh machine code and fortran and stuff like that 
is is because it didn't take up a lot of, of real estate on the on the device or on the chip and you know an older satellite you didn't have a lot of real estate but you still had to learn you know like they still had to put sequences you know and how do you do that well you break down your word so and that's a very important comment. I, I would say, like, you know, sometimes we don't have the whole picture and, like, the constraints of a system, right, to fully appreciate what it was back in the day. And I think, like, it was a feat of engineering going into space using punch cards. And mm-hmm. to some degree, it, it is still impressive today, but I think the level of hardware that we've been able to, like, minimize is very different, right? Like, the, the control systems nowadays in... Uh, space rockets uh, by SpaceX, I think is completely different, right? You can stick that little chip, as you said, with more code than you could probably on a stack of those cards back in the day and yeah. put that chip virtually in. Every sensor room. has that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> or, or like, if you think about the mainframe, we used to literally, you'd get up from your desk, you'd walk down the hall, you'd get a drink of water, and then you'd, you'd carry this stack of paper back. <laughs> it's like, I didn't carry punch cards back, but the, you know, the guys I was working with, they, they did. And they had the stories. You guys have probably run into people that, you know, had the stories where, you know, when they, when they went to compile, if it, you know, if, if somebody bumps into you and you get it out of order, the, then you're going to spend an hour and a half in the floor in the hallway making it go back in the order. So yeah. otherwise, you'll, you, you know, it wasn't going to work out for you. So, And I would say, you know, to bring this back to the world of controls, like I've seen very old hardware being deployed and people sometimes don't have the appreciation the same way where an old controller, you could run out of memory mm-hmm. space with your program on the PLC side, right? It's it's also a similar train of thought in, in control systems, right? Like there's constraints that used to be different. It's not always as easy to say as like, well, why don't we just put this, you know, state-of-the-art new controller and it's going to solve all our issues. There are constraints at the time that were different uh, than we're facing today. So it's, uh, it's important to realize that. And I think like looking back at history, I think things tend to repeat themselves to some degree, but also understanding those challenges, I think, makes us better engineers uh, as a whole, I would say. I, I think so. And, and you, still have, you still have equipment out there that, that relates. Um, what, it's probably been, I think it's been eight years. We still had a PLC2 on the floor at Linux. Um, the systems here um, at Bloom, they, they, they have SMEMA. Um, and that's, you know, that's not even a PLC. That's, that's programming a chip and, and connecting mm-hmm. it to, a, to a card. Um, and it's the way that they used to do the, the old conveyors, the, um, you know, all of these things were, it, it's still, it's still here. Um, in the DCS world, um, we still have like apex and if it out, I don't know, it's probably been. 10, 15 years, and then they had a gradual, um, you know, putting it to bed kind of thing, and then now it's not supported anymore, it's, as far as I know, it, it may still be, because customers come back and say, hey, it's still running, mm-hmm. <laughs> leave it alone, um, or we don't have the, the, the talent to, to work on it, um, or you got to put in a new system that mm-hmm. integrates with it, and that's, you know, one of the things that Delta V does is, you know, on their on their IO 
you know, that ability to make a, a card um, or a IO block, you know, analog or input output, it gives you some of that flexibility so that you can play with the, the, the interfaces so that you can talk to old and new. Um, yeah. And I would say that's the, that's the challenge of manufacturing, right? Something like a, a cell phone would be it, obsolete within it, a, a couple yeah, of years. Same thing with Mitsubishi. Yeah. Sorry, Toby. We we're yeah. losing you every now and then on the <laughs> on the network side. I don't know if you want to check the connection really quick. You um, are. Um, can you hear us? I okay? don't have an option to change my connection at the okay. moment, so. No problem. Uh, Not but yeah, a I was problem. just gonna. So hopefully we'll gonna hopefully we'll survive. <laughs> no problem. I was just gonna comment. You know, in control systems world and manufacturing, what we're installing is pretty much supposed to last 20, 30 years, right? Versus in consumer electronics, it's two, right. three years, and I think yep. it's become obsolete. So it's, it's entirely like different worlds. And when I even have conversations with my colleagues in, uh, again, in like a different setting, they don't always understand that we need to be building for 20, 30 years, yeah. while they're only planning right. for one or two years. And I think that even, you know, not to steer the direction in, in, that, convers in that conversation, but even the challenges that we have with supply chain I think they're very unique in our space because we're trying again, like to build something for 30 years, whereas they can just weather the storm for like six months and a year. And it's just a new version of the chip and every, everything's kind of back to normal, but it's certainly an interesting Absolutely. challenge. Can, can I move our, our conversation maybe along just, just slightly along the technology side? So, so, to, sure. so Toby, I know you're doing a bunch of super exciting things that I've seen robots. Uh, I don't know how much you can talk about, and I'd love to get into that. But before, can, can we talk a little bit about kind of the, the part of your career that leaves punch cards and, and all of the control systems? And, and can you maybe share a little bit about what, what you've experienced, maybe some things that you've enjoyed, maybe some absolute horror stories um, of things maybe that didn't go, <laughs> go right? Uh, any, any or all of those we would love to hear more on. Um, so, so I finished my degree while I was at Lockheed and I, to do that, I ended up moving back to the telecommunications company, um, and did some provisioning and it was at a different juncture with technology because we were all coming off of analog uh, where I got involved with the class five switches, uh, AT&T and, uh, DMS 100, 200s, uh, some Ericsson's and, and again, it applies to controls and that you're provisioning a circuit and it, your circuit just happens to be like, you know, from here, you know, like from San Jose to New York. Um, at the time I was in Denver and, um, you know, one of the circuits that we had was, uh, with the S and P 500 or with the stock exchange. So, you know, and that was a high, a high dollar circuit. So a lot of times when that went down, um, you know, you were on it straight away and had to troubleshoot that. And it's another, it's another skill set as far as being able to call somebody up and say, hey, can you look at this and then go through the provision provisioning. So it's kind of like, you know, when you call up a Rockwell and say, hey, I can't make this drive work. Um, what am I what am I missing? And the guy goes through the 3000 variables and tells you, yeah, it's that one. Um, you know, and, and then connectivity. So um, those those are things that I applied 
Yeah, we used to have, um, I used to have guys that went out in Wyoming and have to take a snowmobile to a remote location. Um, you know, kind of like if we bring this back around to SCADA, you've got remote circuits out there with the railroad, um, you know, weather circuits, et cetera, and, and then telephone lines that are going through. And we had water circuits and you know, those kind of customers that would be on these lines and have to give feedback back or they would lose something and mm -hmm. sometimes it would be our line um you know one one time i had to wait there gets the connection again so hopefully you'll hear this um one time i had to wait until the next day so the guy could drive out there and you know wyoming gets a lot of snow so yeah. um all those things come into play and if you think about it you know that's why oil and gas and the chemical companies and the um Even paper and cement, they're mm -hmm. a quarter mile to get there, and that's why we have remote monitoring and, and SCADAs. Um, so I took that experience, so the programming at Lockheed, the theory from the electrical engineering, um, and the telecommunications troubleshooting, mm -hmm. and the troubleshooting education from the military, and, and applied it with my electrical engineering to get into controls. And I had kept applying for engineering jobs at the telephone company, and I was wasn't getting um, wasn't getting looked at. So mm -hmm. I got a commissioning engineer job at um, I forget the name of the company now, but they make high coders and fluid beds. Okay. Um, Vector Corporation, and I believe they've been bought out by by f f Front, but it's a OEM that makes equipment for pharmaceutical mm -hmm. and that led to um worldwide travel and anybody in the pharmaceutical industry usually goes around the world um and then also with commissioning you're you're still troubleshooting the electrical circuits you're still looking at the software you're still climbing up in the ceiling to know why the valve got stuck or didn't get stuck um you know and all those things and then you know coming out of the off the ladder and you have to interface with the customer. And, um, you know, those are unique experiences to me because today I don't think everybody gets that well-roundedness. Mm -hmm. Um, and sometimes we're coming out of school and we're just programming and it, you know, goes back to understanding the firmware, but at the same time, you do, you understand the whole system concept and that, um, and even with pharmaceutical like validation, you know, they, they break it down to, you don't have a stack of punch card wannabes, but you'll have a manual that says you're going to go through every piece in the HMI and the, yes, this button is blue, you know, and yes, it does this when you hit the button, you know, and the speed is X, Y, Z and, mm -hmm. you know, all those things come into play. Um, so if I put all that together and then, you know, it applies to controls and, have I had a great career? I don't know. It's been rough. Um, but I've had an interesting career as far as my exposure. And I've done continuous process and I've done discrete manufacturing. Um, as far as a favorite, I have fond memories of Lockheed. And then mm -hmm. uh, Apollo Products is a, uh, is a, is a mom-and-pop heat treat. And uh, okay. they, uh, they make it work. They have their own engineering department. They have like six plants and 
the one brother is a finance guy the other guy the other brother is an engineer and they um they're the only heat treat in the country that has their own engineering group and they were the first ones to expose me to um rs logics 5000 and we used the the first control logics to um upgrade their their furnaces and it was interesting the fact that we could schedule you know the guy could that scheduled the batches could sit at his desk hit a button and we made it so he could download all the furnace parameters and then um the operator had to come scan it to start the process and if he didn't scan within what the computer expected you know then he had the wrong load so we you know that it's a pokey oak if you would um that kept it so that we would be in line with what the schedule was, which made four happy, you know, and then you start learning uh, business-wise, you start learning everything as far as how everybody's connected. You mentioned supply chain and mm-hmm. nowhere else in the world. I think, can you get a bigger picture of supply chain than when you're doing control systems and manufacturing? So, and I'll keep rambling. If I don't pause, you guys won't have any more questions. Uh. <laughs> Uh, no, no, I, I think that that sounds exciting. So I have worked, uh, with, we'll just call them groups who, who work with outside heat treating, uh, engineers. And, uh, I'm not sure that I, I feel like every single one of these groups, it's always, you kind of bounce from one to the other because who has done right by you on the last job or who has potentially done wrong by you on the last job. And then, then you kind of bounce in and out. So, so it's interesting to to listen to kind of the inside versus outside engineering uh, groups. Can, yeah. can you, can you expand upon that? So I guess we have talked with a number of people, most of them work as kind of outside engineers because most groups kind of across the country, manufacturing, industrial, don't have a lot of inside engineers, right? That's no longer a core competency. So can you talk a little bit about your experience and if that was positive to to be part of that internal team versus frustrating because maybe you didn't get the same opportunities or the ability to learn if you were part of a a, a larger organization that just focused on heat treating and, and you had 20 different jobs on 10 different platforms a year? Um. So if I hear you right, you're talking about like the difference between an in-house engineering group and a and an integrator. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I'd love. We'd love to hear your your okay. experiences uh, on that, please. So, so it, it, it depends. Um, I think, uh, but it depends on what your core. And my internet may be freaking out again. Um. It depends on what competencies, if I can do my proper English, um, that you have on your crew, yep. and you know, and also your 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 C group has to understand that, that automation is a priority, mm-hmm. and and that's what um, you know. That's why I always I, I feel like I left Paulo too early, but I always admired them because they they were well rounded that way, and. Um, you know, I've been in other groups, you know, like um, at Doosan Fuel Cell, I was part of an advanced manufacturing team. Mm-hmm. And um, there was a lot of UTC guys there. And, you know, they, they had um, they had the concept that we could, you know, like advanced manufacturing would do the extra stuff um, to support the lines, you know, but you were not, 
you would coordinate with the maintenance team and with facilities, but you wouldn't, you weren't on maintenance. You know, same thing with, um, with what's going on at Bloom. Um, the, um, you know, they're looking for advanced manufacturing people that can help integrate their machines together and then also help advance them so that they can grow. Um, or, or it's not like growing company size, but um, ramp up, you know, to meet their customer needs. Mm-hmm. And I think what we're seeing right now is that, especially in the Bay Area, there's a lot of people that want to ramp up, but they don't have an idea how to do the automation, um, to do it in stages mm-hmm. so that so that it doesn't get out of control. Yep. And and that, that makes it difficult. And um, with our business constantly changing, you know, what – what somebody might know from 10, 15 years ago doesn't necessarily apply right now. Mm-hmm. And, um, or maybe it applies here, but not the same. And, you know, like the, we talked before about with the networks, you know, if you want to, <laughs> I have one guy that throws out at me all these acronyms, you know, SCADA, MES, ERP, uh, material handling system, AGB, you know, mm-hmm. I don't know. You can throw any acronym you want at it. And for me, it, underneath that factory information systems um but you can't and um so you don't always have the competency in-house to get that infrastructure you don't always have the time to build um to do the coding and to do a, a proper design um like a design cycle you know like the Concept with process, doing the mechanical drawings um, and the mechanical concept and, and sealing it in. And then, you know, or at least getting like 80, 90% and then going on to electrical and then and then having your software and, and your software has to go, you know, in conjunction with that. And then with today's world, with Agile, they want to speed it all up. So we're going from a, you know, from a steady thing like this to, you know, all over the place with design right now. And, um, and of course everybody wants it yesterday mm-hmm. and that's difficult if you're a plant engineer, because you may have fires to put out to maintain production. And so I think the people get pulled in different ways. You know, the, the places that I've seen it work, they literally put somebody in charge of automation and they work on automation and they don't work on the manufacturing part. They're, they're a, sub part because that's your customer but and and then they also have a design in house or they make the decision hey i'm going to do drawings or concept or or uh, you know proposal and requirements and then they send it out and then they get their quotes and then you go to an integration side um and then you might you manage it and and then you get that split um am i a powerpoint engineer or am i a hands-on and the I think people struggle with that internally. Um, but in short, to answer your question, it all depends on what your competency is in house, because, um, if you've got the competency, I think it can be, uh, successful. If, if not, um, you know, and, and you try to rush it, I think, I think you end up having trouble. And, um, one thing we take for granted with integrators is they, they have the supply chain relationship. They have the you know relationship with Rockwell and the software companies. Mm-hmm. They get the you know like I worked for one integrator one time and we tested out a, a drive for Rockwell and we figured out we were having a 
trouble on the um, it was absolute, and it would do okay on one cycle, but then if we powered down or powered back up, the next run, the next position, it wouldn't do right. So we kicked it back and um, found out that the testing in Long Island, you know, Rockwell was testing it one time before yep. packaging it up and sending it out. And then, uh, <laughs> you know, the, they trusted <laughs> they trusted the integrator to give him that feedback. And then yep. it was because of the relationship with, with the Rockwell, uh, you know, manager, the, the regional manager that, that we were able to take it all the way back to, to the plant. Yeah. And, uh, you know, a, a manufacturer might not have that because they're a different customer. And, uh, and then also you run into issues with capital, you know, do you have the capital, pro- the capital money mm-hmm. to build a machine or do you need to get funding for it or do you need, you know, your monthly, you know, as, as far as expenses? So yep. it's, it's not the easy question that you've got there. And, uh, but, but again, I think it depends on who your core competencies are. Absolutely. I, uh, I, I laugh at the, the drive where it worked really well until you powered it down and, and powered it back up. I, I have a, I have a client who will remain nameless but they every week take their lines down for specific cleaning and autonomous maintenance. And every week they go to power it up and they lose somewhere between two and like 16 VFDs. And they've kind of got to cycle power enough times until enough of them work that they can replace them. I They, they go through VFDs more, more frequently than we go through bags of chips um, in, in this house. And I always oh, wow. laugh because because I look at them I'm like, guys, we're, we're not, VFDs should not break like that. Um, and I also laugh. So early at the beginning of the year, we had Benson Hoagland on from, from Opto 22. And he was saying how all of Opto's equipment is tested 200%, right? So, so they test it at like the lowest temperature and then they test it at like the highest temperature. And that, that was a very, uh, the very proud thing for them of, they always test at the bottom and then they test it at the top and you've got the little sticker that says tested 200%. And, uh, that alleviates all of those issues, um, as, as you were just talking about. So, so I think that, uh, I think that that's very interesting. It will be interesting to see if more organizations kind of take those those thoughts on, or if we're just trying to to push out as much product as we possibly can with supply chain issues that we're finding today. Um, and if someone gets a bad drive, then they can just go back to the end of the line and they'll get a new drive again in, in eighteen months. <laughs> in eighteen months, yeah. yeah. Um, it's interesting that you that you brought that up because the um, um, yesterday I was at the the UR masterclass and um, you know they have some partners that they've brought up you know for robotics as a service mm-hmm. and um, and I find it very interesting and I have mixed feelings about it because the um, you know it's it's almost like leased in a car yeah. Um, but you know, from the supply chain side, it's, it's driving. You know, I think that's part of the drive, and then also the um, the lack of um, or the reduced number of people that are out there that can program, and then also the uh, you know the the push to have you know when when someone in the management group says, "Hey, I want this yesterday," 
and mm. and you're like well i've already got this project and that project or whatever well we'll sub it out it's like well they they still can't do it quickly either but that's yep. part of their um with the as a service they're like well we can do this um and get it pre-programmed in a box uh ready to go you know mm -hmm. customized for integrating with your line um you know input to the line exit of the line something in between um and they're they're targeting those small i don't want to say small the the more simple applications like you yeah. know depalletizing palletizing yeah. mm -hmm. um yeah you know, smaller you know, stuff like that um and so it's it's more of an off-the-shelf solution. Yeah. And then what was interesting is that they said they would size the robot, mm -hmm. and and then if you if you have a a servo fail, then they come out and they replace the whole robot, and then they'll really? fix it on the side. But then that way you don't you don't worry about your yeah. downtime, um, or you mm -hmm. you minimize it, you know. And the, and then they, you know, and obviously they're, they're going to refurbish the bot. Yep. But the um, the concept is interesting, and you know when it comes to cobots, mm -hmm. you know a lot of it is you know hey I wanted it to work here, maybe you don't have the funds for that, but we'll stick it over here, and that you yeah. got to have that adaptability. And I think that um, I think long term we're going to see more and more of that. But I mean that's just my gut feeling. I Absolutely. it's also from the C level group saying. You got to have it yesterday. So it's yeah, like absolutely. Nobody's, let, everybody's in a rush right now. Let me ask. You said you had mixed feelings. I think we all have mixed feelings. I guess for, for me, I am excited to see what this type of new service could mean for the industry in general. Uh, but but I'd, I'd love, would you mind expanding upon the, the mixed feelings? Because I, I know you work in robotics. I, I'd love to kind of dig into that a little bit uh, after this. But what are kind of your gut visual reactions of, of machines as a service or robotics as a service? Um, just, just, just where, where we fit in as traditional controls people. I mean, yeah. I, I, I was brought up, so to speak, as you know, you did the drawings, you did the software, you, you did the whole thing from napkin to finish. Mm -hmm. Um, so I wasn't segregated as far as programmer, HMI, you know, electrical system and mechanical. Um, so the, you know, if we're doing it as a service, you know, then, then who do I work for? You know, do I work for the customer or do I go work for the, you know, yeah. and the, it's no different, I guess, than like the integration. It goes back to your question a minute ago. You know, if you work for an integrator, you get more exposure all the way mm -hmm. around um, as far as processes and industries. But if you, work for a, a manufacturer, then you can, uh, you know, you can specialize in what they're doing and the types of equipment that they need. Um, mm -hmm. From a business standpoint, if you're looking at it strictly numbers, the uh, the interesting thing is, is that you can put, instead of capital, you're putting it on your monthly expenses. Yep. So that can be convenient, but it may not be the tax write-off. So the, the guys, mm -hmm. the bean counters have a, uh, you know, if they have a say in it, then maybe that's based on your choose or based, you know, maybe that affects your choice. Yeah, so. absolutely. I would say, I think that it is, I think both sides are compelling, right? I think the ability to say, hey, I don't have $400,000 for a new palletizer, but I can spend 
$20 an hour every hour that this palletizer is running. And I can get this new palletizer in six weeks versus waiting seven months to, to go custom order the thing that I can't afford. So I think that that that's very uh, it's appealing, right? It, it has to be something right. that the people look at as to if it's the future or not. I think only time will tell. I do think you brought up a, a very, <laughs> I agree with you on that one. <laughs> good, good. So, so I think you brought up a very interesting point, right? So, so when you were coming up, you kind of learned to do, I, uh, I will call it almost like the, the full service engineering work, everything from understanding the problem through drawings, through components, through build, through through commissioning. And that is a really good way for you to understand what, what the whole system looks like. I'd imagine that it continues to, to serve you well today. But that doesn't seem to be the way we have lots of, of newer controls engineers or, or engineers coming up in this industry do you think that, that that's a that's a miss? Is, is that something that we should go back in order to make sure people understand from requirements through drawings all the way to finished systems? Or do you think that it's a positive that we almost have engineers specializing on different components or different sections of a control system? Well, the, uh, the, the it depends on what you're building, but the the complexities are different today. Mm-hmm. Um and, and I'll be honest with you, I I wouldn't call myself good at all of it. I I I, I know enough from a system standpoint to um, to be good at or to be great at times or whatever. And I guess mm-hmm. I should say great. I think I'm good at some things, but the um, I'm definitely more of a systems specialist as opposed mm-hmm. to you know I'm not the best coder. I have to review things when I do electrical drawings. Um, so it, and and then the complexity of today's systems, I, I think we're we're going to stay in that segmented type roles because especially with data and adding, um, you know, for the discrete manufacturing to start adding more and more data. So you're going to have a person that specializes with the data. You're going to have a person that's, you know, doing the electrical and understanding the the power conversion and the, mm-hmm. you know, all the boxes. Um, and then, and then you'll have somebody that has to code it and put it all together. Um, and to that point, I, you know, I've, I got my master's in systems engineering in 2010. I, nobody knew what a systems engineer was in the manufacturing world back then. It was all aerospace. Ah. And I'm like, I'm a systems engineer. And they're like, you know, what the hell? <laughs> um, the, uh, but now it's more popular mm-hmm. and, and, and you see some of those cross functionality um, and you see aerospace ideas coming over to, to different fields. Um, and that's, you know, even in our own business, you know, like just Yokogawa mm-hmm. or, or is it Yaskawa? I always change. Anyway, the people that make the DCS, not the robot, um, their, their whole business idea is that, their older system, um, you know, version five can integrate with version 20. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they have a systems approach that's totally different than, you know, like with Rockwell, if you're on version 35, they don't want you to play with version 11. And, mm-hmm. and that's, you know, those are, those are things from a system standpoint, um, you know, that I can bring to the table as far as, you know, making the electrical and mechanical and everything come together. And, um, you know, and it, add that to the data side, even with SCADA, um, 
not everybody's skater is going to be the same. You know, you mm -hmm. don't have the same needs, you know, and you run into restrictions there with the, um, with the bandwidth. If you're doing quality control and you're taking five pictures per unit and you do a hundred units an hour and you want to transfer bitmaps and then you come to me and you say, well, my, my network is flaky. You know, I'm going mm -hmm. to tell you, your network's probably fine, but you're trying to do PLC robot and pictures on the same network. Mm -hmm. So you have no bandwidth, you know, and, and so you got to understand, you know, what you're dealing with. And, um, you know, at that point as a systems engineer, it's more likely that, you know, you'll go get the specialist and say, hey, I've taken it this far. Um, I need to dig a little bit deeper. What is the best solution to put together to answer that problem? Anyway, so it's, it's about taking the old with the new. And, and one thing that made it super easy was the newer technology. You can do a, a UDT. And what, um, you know, back to the systems type thing, you know, so I go and I look at my controller. My controller can handle UDTs and it's actually got them. So I'm like, all right, will that interface with the Ethernet connection, et cetera? And you do all the system analysis. And that's on one side. And then you also have to go, and I asked lots of questions of uh, Clayton Controls and um, Josh at Clayton and, and some other people. And I got, you are involved in, um, you know, so how far is my reach? Does that match up with what the older robot does, you know, et cetera. And then we looked, you know, I had to get my mechanical engineer involved. You know, what's what's the footprint? You know, what's mm -hmm. the pedestal connection? What's, will my end effector, my old end effector fit on the UR? What do we have to do? to um you know to make this a minimized time um mm -hmm. and then have it still work and um and you know it, i say that we got lucky because of the way that the person programmed it 12 years ago um it, they, it was segmented out and it's the same thing that we do with inputs and outputs you know you got your physical coming in and then you put your tag you know and i'm doing this like left hand side of the sheet right hand side of the sheet yeah um and then your outputs, we were able to take the UDT tags or the UDT IO, if you would, and bring it in and, you know, just make a table to connect up with the old, older tags. And then we had to do some, um, you know, some manipulation because the startup of the, of the UR is a little bit different than, you know, for instance, the Viper still had a high power, um, like, it's not a repeater, I guess it's a, it's a different, it had a power module and a controller, so it has to do some extra initialization. Um, the UR doesn't have to do that. Um, you know, we can pretty much plug it in, put in the ethernet, do all of our safeties, you know, pull in the e-stop and the door stops and make sure that we're not gonna bump into people, program the, um, program the positions and then, and then test it out. And that's, that's pretty much how it went. Um, and it's been, it's been relatively easy. So that's an example, I guess, of taking, understanding the system architecture, taking old and integrating it with new. And, um, that's kind of been, I've had those kind of problems thrown at me my whole life. So. Absolutely. No, I think <laughs> like, that Hey, do you find this interesting? <laughs> 
that is very that is very exciting, Toby. And we, we certainly want to be respect respectful of your time. I feel like that there are many more questions that we have, and we'll have to uh, to bring you on at, at some point uh, in the future to, to go ahead and make sure that uh, that we had on all of those. Uh, but uh, I I guess l- let's slightly change up the order of the questions that that we ask everyone because you you've already given us a preview of, of what your book recommendation is. So can, <laughs> can you t- can you talk a little bit about lean robotics, please? Well, I have like two or three other books I could recommend too. But no, so the reason why I like this um, is so this is written by Samuel Bicard. Um, hopefully, I didn't mm-hmm. kill his name. The uh, he's the CEO of um, Robotique, and okay. they are a they are a partner with UR, okay. and um, they're one of the. They're one of the uh, companies that's putting out the, you know, like you can buy a palletizer, depalletizer, mm-hmm. um, pretty much off the shelf, plug and play, and you put in your your parameters and it'll go. The, um, but when he says lean robotics, you know, he talks about all the things that you can, um, that you need to think about before you apply a cobot to your application. And uh, yep. one thing that most everybody talked about yesterday was you know that we always want the robot to do the most or the cobot we want the cobot to do the most complicated thing and it's like that may not be the most efficient um job for the cobot it may not give you the most return on investment and um his book talks about you know looking at that and going through um what you need to to walk through as far as process knowledge to make that decision to let a cobot uh take over where where maybe a, a human is doing the you know the what the repetitive dangerous dirty yeah um and and then understanding how it's going to come into your process mm-hmm. and, and so doing it smartly and um and then making a decision based on on doing some of this homework as opposed to just you know hey i want a robot there you know it's like and that's what i can appreciate um you know with some of the issues today i think we we need to slow down sometimes and think about it and be smart about it because it's a lot of money to put a system in and it's a lot of time so absolutely no i think that those are very very good points we won't ask you to go into as much detail with the others but you you did say you had a couple other book recommendations uh that we should check out well i like um so i gotta say shout out to gary platt because codices and open open source um and he, you know, I use it, I use it as a reference because he, he's very much about state machines and yeah. I can always get, I can always get an example of what I need to code in there. Um, green lights is fun because, uh, Matthew McConaughey, um, just the way he talks about life. He's a true okay. Texan. And, um, I grew up in Texas, born in Texas. People usually don't realize that until they spend time with me. Um, I love but that we book. I can't way... remember who somebody recommended it. Uh, uh, sorry to to interrupt the thought. I really liked his like memoir and like the the concept of green lights. I don't know, Dave, if you've read it, but uh, yeah, I, I've gone through like, gotta, the audiobook twice. Read it. It's really good. Okay. Yeah, I, I, and you gotta I will go have through to it check twice it out. to like get all of his jokes. But he just if you're like um you know Tom Sawyer kind of Huckleberry fan kind of thing, he. Matthew McConaughey has that kind of sense of humor and he just, some of the stuff he's done in his life is just 
you know, kind of crazy stupid, but it's he's had fun, and he talks about how he came across to some decisions, and um, it okay. reminds me to laugh. And then he, he realized that it, I don't know, it's the Texas thing, but I think every time you, every time I meet someone from Texas, we have a connection that is just like below the surface, and okay. and that's I don't I don't know because I mean, we we really do things bigger and better in Texas sometimes, mm-hmm. but you gotta understand too. I haven't lived there in like thirty years, so maybe I'm not the one to ask as far as Texas, but. Okay. Um, it, it reminds me of home and then it's just straightforward of, uh, you know, if you get a green light, that's a go. If you get a yellow light, s- slow it down. Maybe it's not the time. Maybe you come back around. Maybe you got to go around the block. Who knows? Maybe, maybe you're going to, you know, maybe your car is overheating and you need to chill out. Um, you know, if you get a red light, then don't worry about it. You know, take a left turn, right turn, whatever, you know, it, there's a lot of places to drive, so to speak. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. And he just the way he uh, the way he approaches his lessons in life, I I can totally relate to. Awesome. Um, the other the other one I was going to mention this is like just from school. It's it's called Mythical Man Month, and as we get more on the IT side or software driven yeah. on a, on a controls, um, one of my pet peeves is that you know. 1970s leaders, they always think if you add more people, it's going to go faster. Mm-hmm. And the Mythical Man Month talks about that. And they also talk about um, measuring a work unit um, based on a human being realistically. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, adding more people to a project doesn't always make it go faster. And I, I just think it's a smart – it doesn't a- totally apply to like Agile, but it's a smart yeah. thing to look at. That, that, that is a good life lesson for all of us. No, I, I appreciate that, Toby. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, so we always ask our guests to predict the future. And we've talked about so many topics. I, I want to leave it open to maybe just like general automation or manufacturing. Uh, c- can you give us a prediction as to what the future is going to look like? Um, I, I, I am... I am pretty sure that open open PLCs and the the low code no code, mm-hmm. yeah. From what from some of the things I saw yesterday, um, yeah. You know, I, th- I think it's going to be out there. I, th- I think it's going to get more. Um, it's going to take up more traction. I definitely think Cobots is going to pick up. Okay. The um, you got to understand with with Cobots, it hasn't cracked wide open yet. Mm-hmm. It, it's only starting to ramp, um, and maybe it's more you know steep than that, but. Um, it, it's coming. There's there's more to come with automation as far as the the interaction between the robots and the people, and then uh, your data data is not going away. <laughs> data is just gonna. I, we're I gonna think, have think... terabytes. <laughs> we're gonna have gigantobytes. I I don't know. I don't know what the next number is. The xenobyte or whatever. Yeah. The, uh, we're gonna be flooded in data forever and uh, controls so i think all of those are very are one very good predictions and i think two uh we certainly talked about robotics earlier this year we're certainly going to talk about robotics and maybe also cobots uh more in depth next year so everyone uh, stay tuned for that thank you for the uh, for the amazing setup uh we do like to, to ask for some career advice uh so so you, you've done you've done a whole lot of things your experience is is very vast do you have 
uh, suggestions for people maybe looking to get into uh, controls engineering or robotics or maybe looking to make the change from control systems to robotics? What, what does that advice look like? If um, I can, Toby, like expand on that real, really fast, uh, I think like the unique perspective also on like systems engineering, because, you know, the question that I often get is someone in controls is looking to grow and they're trying to pick either like a degree or they're trying to pick like, you know, a program certification and, you know, for better or for worse, I picked an MBA, but I know that there's a lot of like different uh -huh. paths and what you want to learn. And that's, you know, like my perspective is going to be for another day, but I'm curious, you know, to hear your thoughts also like on kind of like growing as a controls engineer and choosing maybe like a degree certification uh, and what have you in your career. Yeah. Um, I, th I think it's important to, to know basics. Um, I think we struggle with troubleshooting the, um, and, and to be honest, the troubleshooting skills I got, it, it's from basic electronics. Um, and if you can understand the basic electronics or just, just segmenting a system. So, breaking down your components and, and maybe that's practice. Maybe that's, um, you know, a, a, a skilled trades course or, you know, cause there's, there's some companies out there that expect a controls engineer to get an electronic or electrician's license. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, I think it, I think it's important to know that. Um, but with that being said, you can't leave out mechanical, because it's an electrical mechanical response. That's why we're calling it mechatronics these days. Um, so there are things that you need to understand as far as you, know, you can cover up mechanical issues with software. Um, so the systems point of view comes in handy that way of understanding the big picture and how things are, are behaving. Mm -hmm. um, to me, one of the, the biggest things that ever happened in my life to uh, for me to get a feel for what's going on with the machine, my before I went out on the road as a commissioning engineer 20 years ago, um, my boss had me go and build one. And that way you learn how it's put together. You learn, you know, even down to, you know, sometimes you gotta, you'll get pre-drilled holes sometimes if you're doing yeah. uh, sheet metal, mm -hmm. um, but maybe they don't fit, maybe they're too tight. <laughs> Um, and you got to slip it a little bit, but you got you can't slip it too far. Um, and it was interesting to see the guy. Uh, he went and checked with the engineer out of respect, even though he already knew what to do. And then also putting it together and then testing. And like the first time you go and you test a, um, <laughs> you test a blower and <laughs> the polarity is off and you're like, why am I overheating? And then I'm like, mm -hmm. and then, and all the technicians are sitting around there watching you uh, to see what you do. Um, yeah. The first time you get shocked because you don't, you don't look at the circuit underneath the, you know, there's, yeah. I had an extra safety circuit that was underneath one of uh, one of these mixing bowls. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I ended up taking 208 briefly and um, mm. you know, the response was, Good thing you had rubber on the boots, you know, those kind of things. That um those are that's how you learn to apply the book knowledge to reality and it, to me you know, call it old school, I guess, but to to be good at it, I think you have to be able to apply um apply the book to the to what you're seeing and that also involves drawings. One of my pet peeves is that people aren't learning how to draw schematics anymore. Um, and the 
you know, it's a, you need it. It's a necessity. So take the class. It's only a thousand bucks to go learn SolidWorks electrical. So anyway, that's my spiel. <laughs> I, I, I like it. I, I, I like it. I, I think these are all really good pieces of advice and good pieces of core knowledge that if you can capture will be extremely beneficial uh, for, for you and for everyone you work with into the future. I will also say on Vlad's side, that was a super self-serving question. He, he always, uh, I joke that Vlad, we asked the career advice uh, because Vlad would ask for career advice from virtually everyone we, we talked to. And, and it's only, uh, it's only half of a joke, but no, I think that that's. Uh, the, I, I haven't figured out what I want to be when I grow up either. So it's, it's okay. I, I think, I think we're all just trying to figure out what we want to be uh, when we grow up and I'm not sure where any of us are ever going to get there. No, that, that is awesome. We, we do have one last question for you it is, is uh, who do you want to talk to? Uh, uh, who, who should reach out to you? Uh, who do you want to talk to kind of this, this is your opportunity to ask our audience anything that you'd like. So, so I'm in a odd place in my life right now with, with my career as mm -hmm. in that I'm struggling to decide whether or not to do my own business or to do, um, keep doing the corporate. Um, mm -hmm. so if, if you've got feedback on that, that's great. Uh, robotics is definitely a core interest of mine. Um, but specifically with cobots and, okay. and it's just because it's fun. The, um, the other thing is I'm taking a, a cybersecurity class and applying that to OT. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, to me, that's cybersecurity is another thing that's not going to go away. Um, I think there's a market out there for the government's been talking for a long time. You know, you guys need to have X, Y, Z, you know, like for the past 10 years, but I think, you know, we're going to see more of the, like the pipeline attack that happened last year and the, um, yep. you know, systems, as far as your, your power, you know, the other thing is, yep. um, you know, large, large manufacturing, um, in my mind, I don't have proof of this, but in my mind that. Uh, um, a lot of the infrastructure is is old mm -hmm. um, and I think there's going to be a lot of large manufacturing as far as cement, paper, you know, all those guys are going to have a, a revolution coming around and, and what I mean by revolution is that they're, they're going to have really old equipment that needs to come out and and get get upgraded so. Absolutely I I think all of those are, are are really good kind of thoughts in the direction you're going. Um, and I would say anyone listening who wants to go listen to some really bleak predictions for the future, go check out our cybersecurity episodes about six weeks ago, um, eight weeks ago, <laughs> to talk about some very bleak predictions for the future. Uh, but no, Toby, this has been amazing. Absolutely. Thank you for coming on. We will continue to, uh, to follow you along your journey, and we'll have to get you back on uh, when we do some more conversations about robotics and everything along those lines. Uh, everyone. Uh, thank you for tuning in and listening. If you guys are watching us live, uh, please hit the thumbs up button. Please hit subscribe. If you are listening in podcast format, please rate us five stars. Please hit the subscribe button. It helps everything that we're doing. And if you're still here, please check out manufacturinghub.live, which is our website where you can catch everything that we're doing. Check out all the former guests and stay tuned for what we're doing in the future. Until next week, we'll see I, everyone soon. I, okay, we're out. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.